You can open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. If anybody's in the back and you feel really squished back there, there are five seats available on the third row up here if you want to move. If you're content where you are, that's fine too. Falsely uh, falsely accused, savagely beaten, unjustly imprisoned for three years, twice ambushed, forced to appeal to Caesar, shipwrecked on his way to Rome, once in Rome, held under uh, under house arrests, imprisoned there for two years. That was the experience of the Apostle Paul. Some of the experiences of, of the Apostle Paul. When Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, he described his experiences, and he said this, Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. He says, I'm talking like a madman. He's taking on the Corinthians because they were elevating those who had earthly credentials. And so he's saying, okay, fine. You want to judge somebody on those terms? Let me lay out my resume. He says, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at the sea, danger from thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there was the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I read that and I thought, okay, this is not our topic for today, but I read that and thought, modern pastors who suffer burnout. Really? Paul's on the threshold of dying from starvation. Uh, He's being betrayed. He's ambushed, robbers, beaten, cold, exposure. And while he's going through all of that, he's caring for the churches. Surprisingly, he didn't burn out. Uh, But that's not our point today. This is the experience of the Apostle Paul. What we're going to see in the book of Philippians, however, that as much as Paul endured while he was seeking to care for the church. In all of his suffering, he was able to maintain an unshakable joy. Our encouragement this morning is simply, how can we have an unshakable joy in the midst of difficulty? We could say this is the unshakable joy, as we're going to see, of a surrendered life. Paul could endure all that he endured because he was first and foremost surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. He maintained his joy, and we're going to see it under three headings, through a surrendered life, through spiritual longing, and through selfless labor. And hopefully what we can see is that if the Apostle Paul could maintain his joy through all that he experienced, then how much the more can we maintain our spiritual joy through the things that we experience? Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, writing to this dear church that was very close to his heart, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. 
Some of the things that we just listed, all those things he experienced uh, right now while he writes to the Philippians, he's actually in jail. This is while he's under house arrest in Rome, he writes this letter. I want you to know, to, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. In other words, they know I haven't done anything wrong. They know that this is persecution. They know that I'm only here for uh, Jesus' sake. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. If Paul's willing to give his life for the gospel this way, is willing to suffer this way, then we should be willing also. So it's embolden others. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonments. He continues, verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Here's Paul imprisoned. He's chained to Roman guards there in Rome. He's dictating this letter, and he's talking about joy. I'm rejoicing. He says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Now again, notice in verse 18, Paul says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed in, in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. How is it that Paul could have joy in the midst of suffering? Paul could have joy while chained to Roman guards in a Roman prison after experiencing everything that he'd experienced because his joy was not at all rooted in circumstances. His joy was rooted in Jesus. His joy was rooted in the gospel. Paul could have joy in suffering because Christ came before Paul. His joy was fueled by the spread of the gospel, not foiled by the appearance of bad circumstances. Because Paul's ultimate priority was to see Jesus Christ glorified, he could rejoice and even rejoice in suffering when he knew he was suffering for Jesus' sake. His personal struggles, yes, they did affect his comfort. But he could see beyond his comfort to the priority of the gospel. If the gospel was advancing and Christ was being preached, then Paul says, then I rejoice. That's where my joy is found. Beyond that, however, Paul had an overarching attitude, which brought all of life's troubles into perspective. Look in verse 20 of Philippians 1. It says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. 
Paul had a confident expectation that his circumstances would not lead to defeat, but they would lead, uh, wouldn't, would not lead to defeat or shame. This was not some naive expectation that, oh, I know I'm going to be delivered from, from, from prison. That's not it. Paul's confidence that he would not in any way be ashamed was born out of the fact that he had already given his life, including his earthly comfort and any personal priorities over to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul didn't have anything to lose because he had already given all to Jesus. And so look in verse 20 again. It says there that Christ will be honored. He says, in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul's deepest desire and highest joy was to see Christ honored. If Christ would be honored through his shipwreck, if Christ would be honored through the beating, if Christ would be honored through the imprisonment, Paul could actually still maintain his joy in the midst of all of those things. He was confident that through his own spirit-enabled faithfulness, Jesus Christ would be honored through his life, and even if necessary, through his death. For Paul, even death becomes a means to honor Christ, so that the prospect of death even becomes a reason for him to rejoice. So through Paul's example, we learn that the key to possessing an unshakable joy is in surrendering one's life and death to be used for Christ's glory. When death becomes a reason to rejoice, suffering loses all of its joy-stealing power. Paul makes this point in verse 21. Look at it. It says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For believers this morning, if you are a Christian, death has lost its sting. Death simply then becomes a vehicle through which we can glorify the Lord Jesus Christ and through which he will be glorified. Life to Paul was a matter of living for for Jesus. There was no higher priority or greater satisfaction than seeing Jesus glorified. He had so thoroughly given his life to the Lord Jesus Christ that he could simply say, for me to live is Christ. That is, it's not for Paul. Paul's not living anymore. Christ is living through me. So if I'm going to live, it's Christ. If I'm going to die, it's Christ. This is not the only place Paul has said this. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 says, For I have been crucified with Christ. When he died, I died. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That the moment that I received Jesus as my Savior and Lord, my life was exchanged for his. He now lives through me. He died for me, so I will live for him. He says, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He gave his life for me, and so now I give my life to him. He did it by dying. I do it through living for him. So Paul understood that when a believer trusts Jesus as Savior and submits to him as Lord, that's the end. That's the end of that self-centered life. In that moment, Christ becomes the center of everything. So Paul could say, I've been crucified. I'm dead to myself. Just as Jesus died for Paul, Paul now lives for him. So it's no longer Paul who lives, but Christ who lives in him. So as, as far as Paul was concerned, his personal goals and desires were dead. Christ's will had replaced Paul's will. Just as Jesus died for Paul, again, Paul would now live for Christ. Now, you could read that and say, well, that's all fine and good. Like we read in, or we, we saw in Equip class. By the way, come to Equip class. Jared's going through Ezekiel. Uh, you'll enjoy Equip class. But you, going through 
Ezekiel. You say, well, look at all that he was called to do, but he was a prophet. You can look at Paul and say, well, he's an apostle. So these men are called to a higher plane, higher living, and so on. And all this is for them, not for us. So Paul could say, I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. But that's his calling as an apostle. That's not for us as just everyday believers. Well, Luke chapter 14. It says, now great crowds accompany Jesus. Now picture it. Jesus is preaching and teaching. His earthly ministry is well underway. Uh, Crowds are being drawn to him so that as he walks as a rabbi, you have masses behind him. The crowds are getting bigger and bigger. As we learned again in equip class, crowds do not indicate faithfulness all the time. Or no, don't say it that way. Uh, Crowds do not indicate success all the time. But there's crowds following Jesus here in Luke chapter 14. And Picture Jesus walking, crowds, and then he stops. And then he turns and he addresses the crowd. And you say, what is he going to say? Probably something to make sure that he doesn't lose the crowd. That's not true. Probably something to make sure the crowd just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. That's not true either. What is he going to say to this crowd who's following him? Well, he turns and says in Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What is Jesus doing? He's obviously never read a book on ministry success. He's obviously never read a book on how to plant a church, clearly. This is not how you do it, Jesus. This is not how you maintain the crowds. If you don't hate your father, mother, brother, and sister, if you don't hate your own life, you can't be my disciple. Beyond that, I mean, where's the nuance here, right? I mean, be a little bit more subtle. I mean, get them in. I mean, attract them with the food, Jesus, and maybe slip that commitment stuff in later. He's got to learn the bait and switch, right? I mean, seriously. If you're a visitor here today, this is my sarcasm, okay? Uh, verse 27 Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That sounds familiar. Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Where did he get that idea from? Well, Jesus said plainly that if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to take up your own cross. You've got to be crucified. You have to die to yourself. Paul is simply saying, I have done what every disciple of Jesus Christ is called to do. This is not something just for the apostles. This is for anybody who would be a disciple of Jesus. He continues, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? What is this? The idea is, before you come to Jesus, and you should come to Jesus, uh, you, you, you ought to be saved. Come and be reconciled to the Father through Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. But before you do that, Jesus says... Count the cost. There is a cost. Well, what is the cost? Well, it tells us there you're going to have to die to yourself. You take upon yourself the name of Jesus. You're baptized in his name, saying, I'm being immersed into him and I'm rising to new life. So now it's not about my desires, it's about his desires. Which is really liberating in some ways because when you want to make life decisions, you don't have to say, oh, what do I want to do about this? What do I want to do about that? You can just ask, well, what does Christ want? What brings the most glory to Christ? That's how you make those decisions. 
There's a whole lot of talk about gray areas. How do you decide on gray areas? Should I do this or should I do that? Well, you've died to yourself, so the question is simply, what brings the most glory to Jesus? Pretty simple. So he says, sit down, count the cost. There's a cost to following me. What is it? Well, it's self-crucifixion. That's pretty high cost. Verse 29. Otherwise, when this guy who sets out to build the tower, and he hasn't determined whether or not he can build it or not, whether he has enough funds or materials to do it, when he's laid the foundation, is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish it. I mean, look at this fool. He decides to build a house, didn't check his bank account to see whether or not he had the funds. He didn't check to see whether he had the material. So he starts building, and that's it. Halfway done, he can't complete it, and he becomes a mockery to all of his neighbors, or all the neighbors mock him. And that's a warning. We do have some new believers here this morning. You're a new believer. This is a warning. It's a warning to everybody, but it's a warning to you. You you freshly, freshly have come to receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Did you know there was a cost? Did you know that this was a matter of deferring your desires to his desires? Did you know that now questions are answered by not what I want to do, but what does Jesus want me to do? Uh, Jesus says, okay, before you come, count the cost. Otherwise, you're like that guy with the half-built tower. And the, the landscape of Christianity is strewn with a lot of half-built towers. People who claim the flash in the pan, the parable of the sower, I mean, that, that, that sprout that sprouts up very quickly, the sun comes up, oh, there's a cost, it's burned, and it dies. You see this happen all the time. So here's a warning. It says, the man began to build the tower and couldn't finish it. And then he gives another picture here, verse 31 of Luke 14. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who's coming against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It's harsh, but it's clear, right? I mean, what kind of church have I just come into here? Uh, But, you know, we have this wonderful privilege of preaching this gospel message, but the wonderful confidence that this is just what Jesus said and not what we are saying. The wonderful confidence that the, the words are so clear and Jesus just made it very, very explicit so that we can proclaim it with authority and understanding is not my authority at all. This is, these are just words of Christ. And so if you would be a disciple of Jesus, you realize that this is an exchange. He died for you to give you spiritual life, and now you live for him. And you don't do that in a way that's onerous or that's like a drudgery or anything. Paul lived that life with joy because that's the life of a genuine believer. This ongoing, we're going to see in a minute, this life of thankfulness and indebtedness to Jesus Christ for what he's done for us. And so we say, you died for me, I will live for you and do it with joy. This is what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. So again, we'll say this as a warning. If you've recently come to Jesus, but you think that this is just a matter of, oh, I'll, you know, kind of just added Jesus to my life. Understand how radical this is. Take up your cross, die to yourself, now you live for him. That's what you proclaim through baptism. I've taken his name upon me, I've identified with him, now I'm raised to walk in newness of life, and now it's his will that governs my life, right? That's true for anyone this morning who's a genuine believer. So, Jesus there is not just addressing apostles, he's addressing the anyone who would come after him. A genuine disciple of Christ has surrendered his life to be used by Christ for Christ's glory. 
Is that your understanding of salvation and discipleship? Your understanding that salvation and discipleship should never be separated? You understand that sometimes you might hear preaching where there's, oh, receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord, maybe one, two, three, pray this prayer, give you assurance that you're saved, and then maybe later on we'll talk about discipleship. These things are never to be separated because Jesus said explicitly, if you're not going to be my, if you, if you don't come after me and take up your cross, you can't be my disciple, right? We don't separate salvation from discipleship, right? You become a disciple of Jesus, uh, and you express that through baptism. I mean, that's how you get in the front door. So, believing in Christ means surrendering our lives to Christ. When Jesus promises joy to his followers, it is with the understanding that his followers are completely surrendered to keeping his commands. He said in John 15, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And then he continues, These things I have spoken to you that my joy might be in you and your joy may be full. Keep my commandments because that's a way to joy. Right? Keep my commandments because that's the way to joy. Every disciple of Jesus Christ by definition has been crucified with Christ. In response to Christ's death on the cross, the genuine disciple has taken up his own cross. In response to Christ's sacrificial death, the genuine disciple has sacrificed his own life. So if you're here, maybe you've made a profession of faith in the past. Maybe you were even baptized in the past. But then you've just gone on living your own life, making your own decisions, not living according to Christ's revelation, not living according to what the Bible clearly says ought to be the lifestyle of a believer. That's a problem. That's a red flag. Uh, what it shows me is either you have not been taught well, you need to, to learn more about Christ's calling in your life, or it may be a red flag that you're that flash in the pan. You're that quick sprout that sprouts up and says, oh, look at all this growth. But then when you see there's a cost, I actually have to sacrifice my own desires and my own preferences. I need to stop serving the passions of my flesh. When you see that, then you say, no, that's not for me. Well, that shows us that perhaps that profession of faith wasn't genuine. Genuine disciples have taken up the cross. Do you remember last week we were in Romans? And we looked at Romans chapter 11, verse 33 through 36, Paul's doxology. Paul celebrating salvation. And we said that Paul in Romans 11, it was the pinnacle of what he had just laid out about salvation in Romans chapter 1 through 11. I mean, that whole section of Romans as he talks about salvation, how God opened it to the Gentiles and about how he worked it out for Jews and Gentiles alike to be saved. And Romans, that awesome chapter of Romans chapter 8 that talks about that golden chain of salvation, it's all in there. Paul's celebrating salvation. Then he comes to Romans 11 and he just bursts forth in praise of God. And so we looked at that and then we said at the end of that sermon, so what's the practical application of all of this? And then I said, just turn over the next page. Because the very next verse in chapter 12, Paul gives us the practical application. As you consider the wonders of salvation and all that God's done for us, then how do we respond to that? Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's almost as if we've detected a theme here in the New Testament. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What what would that look like? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
in response to your salvation, all that God has done for you through the Lord Jesus Christ, give your whole life to Him as a living sacrifice. What does that look like? Don't live like the world. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed. Use the means of grace. Be renewed in your mind. And then it says what? Transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The genuine believer following Jesus who says, my will is now deferred to his will. Those decisions in life when I try to discern what is acceptable, what I ought to be doing, what is good and acceptable and perfect, what becomes paramount then is what what brings the most glory to Jesus. As a pastor, I often have conversations with individuals about gray area issues. Should I do this or should I do that? Uh, there's no, you know, there's no uh, chapter and verse that spells out whether I should do this or whether I should do that. Maybe you've had these types of conversations with people too. And then so you try to rely upon biblical principles. Well, there's this principle you don't want to violate and this principle you don't want to violate. Because we're not about rules, okay? We're not about legalism. Uh, so there's biblical principles we can apply. Those conversations depending on the type of person you're talking to, sometimes is very easy, sometimes is, is difficult. It's difficult when you're dealing with somebody that you sense has not crucified themselves. <laughs> they have not given their bodies a living sacrifice. These are those who want to know, okay, I'm a Christian, but how much can I get away with still? Right? If you have teenagers, you know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, but then on the other hand, there's those who say, my life is now for Christ's glory. And so when you're talking to somebody like that, you can simply appeal to that desire and say, listen, you want to do what brings the most glory to Jesus. You want to discern what is good and acceptable and perfect. Yes? Yes. Okay. Well, that individual is willing to deny themselves. That individual is willing to defer self-gratification. That individual is willing to think about what benefits others and what brings the most glory to Jesus. And then those decisions become very easy. And that's a wonderful conversation to have. Versus the other one. But this is the product of one who's first given themselves to Christ as a living sacrifice, which is the duty of every genuine disciple. But Paul in Romans chapter 12 says, I appeal to your brothers, therefore brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. It's your spiritual worship. What Paul is doing here is he's using Old Testament language. The whole idea here in Romans chapter 12 is that you would present yourself to God as a thank offering. We say we're not going to do this for the sake of time, but Leviticus 22, 2 Chronicles chapter 29 are illustrations of thank offerings. 2 Chronicles 29, there's a a situation under Hezekiah where people are bringing offerings, uh, and it says that they are coming and offering all these offerings with a willing heart and These are thank offerings being offered to God in light of his mercies. Okay, so so Paul is tapping into that Old Testament imagery of the thank offering in response to the mercies of God and says, Believer, you're a follower of Jesus, give yourself to him as a thank offering. That's the idea. Our thank offering is a living sacrifice. Just as the Jews in the Old Testament would offer acceptable sacrifices to God, so should we. Just as the Jews in the Old Testament would offer sacrifice in response to God's mercies, so should we. That's the idea. Thankfulness towards God in the life of a Christian is not something we simply offer at the dinner table before we eat or whisper in prayer. Thankfulness in the life of a Christian is an all-consuming lifestyle. 
We live our lives for God, seeking His will and not our own. So, just like Paul, every believer ought to have an overwhelming sense of love and thankfulness and indebtedness to God for the glorious salvation that He's lavished upon us through the Holy Spirit. Every believer ought to be able to say with Paul, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved himself and gave himself for me. And as we concluded last week, we see that Paul helps us to find that by not being conformed to the world and so on. So that's number one. How does Paul maintain a joy in the midst of all of his suffering, all that he went through? How does he maintain a joy? Well, first of all, because he had a surrendered life. I'm not going to become depressed and despondent because my life isn't going very well and the circumstances are bad because, frankly, I've already died to myself and my only concern is that Christ be glorified. That's number one. Number two, Paul maintained his joy in the midst of all of this suffering because he had a spiritual longing, a spiritual longing. Look in Philippians 1, 21 through 23 again. Well, just look in verse 23. I am hard-pressed between the two. Between the two what? Well, to depart and to be with Christ or to remain here. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. What he's saying is, listen, the worst that can happen to me is that I die. And if I die, I get to be with Christ, and that's far better, so that's gain. So what in the world could be taken from me? That's the idea. So he had a spiritual longing. Yeah, he he loved serving others. He loved building, being used by Christ to build the church, but he longed to be with Christ. Paul was homesick for a place he had never been. He longed to be with the one whom he loved above all others. The same love that led him to surrender his life also gave him a perpetual ongoing longing for Christ's presence. Paul knew that death couldn't rob him. It could only give him more. To live meant to serve Christ, to die meant to be with Christ, and he says that's far better. This is the attitude of every believer. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14 says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Homesick for a place we've never been. Paul applied this attitude practically in Romans 8. Again, verse 18 says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The attitude of the Christian that maintains joy is a spiritual longing that looks like an eternal perspective and a spiritual priority. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That's that eternal perspective. For in this tent we groan, the tent being our bodies, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. There's that longing, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He's saying, I long for the day. And and the older you get, like once you get to be 40, some of you who are much older than 40 are laughing at me right now, but when you get to be 40 and, and on, the longing becomes greater because this tent becomes less glamorous, right? Uh, as opposed to, we got this tent on, but in this tent we groan. 
the suffering of this life for the genuine believer increases a longing for the kingdom to come. And, and, and this is the attitude of all believers, longing for that day when we will see our mortality swallowed up and then we'll be clothed upon with immortality. That's that spiritual priority and eternal perspective. He, he goes on in verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Listen, whether whether I, I die... I want to please him. Whether I live, I want to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due uh, for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That's the eternal perspective. Judgment's coming. I'm going to answer to Christ uh, according to how well I have stewarded all that he's given me, knowing that I want to be busy. If he's not going to take me home to be with him, then I want to serve him. I want to accomplish as much as I can with all that he's given me to bring him the most glory as I await his return. That's the calling of every believer. Now, you understand how that type of attitude, when you lose earthly comforts, when you are denied temporal pleasures, even when you face sickness or even when you face death, if you have first died to self and you have an eternal perspective that says, hey, there's eternal life waiting. I'm going to be able to hear, well done, good and faithful servant by my Lord. If that's the reality, then I can handle all of the difficulties of this life. This builds in us a great desire for that time when our joy will finally be unmixed. Our worship will finally be untainted by sin. My life will finally be unthreatened by death. And so there's a joyful expectation. There's a spiritual longing. By the way, if you pray the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, if you pray that, you express this longing every time you pray. Because what do you pray? Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. In the meantime, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But your kingdom come. So Paul had a spiritual longing. Now, for some people... If you have a a spiritual longing like this and say, okay, well, I'm just so heavenly minded, spiritually minded, I'm just waiting for Christ to return. This is the problem in Thessalonica, by the way. Some people were just hanging on. The end is here. Therefore, I'm going to quit my job and I'm just going to wait. This is like those cults that go up on the top of the uh, high-rise building waiting for the aliens to return and to beam them up, right? Remember that some years ago? Uh, so, So we're just going to sell everything we have and we're going to wait. No, that's not what we do. Not at all. Paul had a spiritual longing for the coming of Christ. And so for him, that gave him that impetus to, to like, I have to be busy. I get gotta have to, have to, I gotta do as much as I can with this window of time that I have to bring him glory. And so he was longing, but he was laboring. This is like Christ when he says, use every opportunity you have to lay up treasures in heaven. Each day for Paul is another chance to secure a lev- loving commendation from Christ. In fact, that's the only thing that gives Paul any pause when he thinks about whether he'd rather stay or go. If I die, I go, but if I stay, I can labor. If I go, I can be with Christ, but if Christ gives me more time, I can serve the church. That's the only thing that gave him any pause was the fact that if he remains, he can still labor. And that type of labor 
laboring for others, serving others, using your spiritual gifts for others, helping to build up the church, uh, that also brings joy, doesn't it? In verse 22 of Philippians 1, he says, for to me to live, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Again, on the one hand, depart be with Christ. On the other hand, if I remain, I can labor, and God can bring forth more fruit. Yeah, Paul's desire was to be with Christ. I mean, that's paramount. But he did, and, and, and he lived with that heavenly longing. But that didn't keep him from fully engaging in this life. Instead, it drove him to labor. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9. Paul says, for I am the least of the apostles. We would argue with Paul here on this point, but he says, for I am the least of the apostles. If you're a new believer, there's two individuals you want to get to know. Jesus. Read the Bible, get to know Jesus. But read the Bible, get to know Paul. Get to know Paul, right? There's other individuals you need to know, but get to know Jesus, get to know Paul. Okay? He says I'm the least of the apostles. I don't agree with him, but that's okay. I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Because I persecuted the church of God. Listen to what he says. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, he says, I worked harder than any of them. He's working by the grace of God, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. He's saying, listen, God's grace has been bestowed upon me, so what did I do? I labored. I labored. I worked. I, I served others. I work to build up the church. That's the product of God's grace. Now, not only did he think that way, but he instructed other believers to do the same thing. So in the same passage in 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, you be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That was not written to apostles. That was written from the apostle to the church. So... You labor, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You're going to do it by God's grace as well. The point is, there's a joy that comes from selfless labor. Paul longed with spiritual longing, yeah, but he also gave himself to selfless labor. Look in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23 again. It says, I am hard-pressed between the two. It's interesting that he says he's hard-pressed. He explicitly says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. So he knew what he wanted, but he understood that uh, he was going to defer his desires to the building up of the church if need be. His struggle was between what was his desire and what was necessary for the Philippians. Talk about sacrifice. Talk about an attitude of deference. Willing even to delay his going to Christ if it meant laboring for his fellow believers. So... Paul, in all of this, and again, to emphasize, he's writing this while he's chained to Roman guards. He's writing this while he's imprisoned in Rome, falsely, imprisoned for Christ's sake, facing all kinds of false accusations and so on. In all of this, he can write a loving letter to the church in Philippi. And in it, in chapter 1, he can talk about joy. How? Well, he can talk about joy because, first and foremost... He is rejoicing in the gospel being preached. But he could talk about joy because he had already surrendered his life. A prisoner in Rome? Okay, well, he was already a prisoner of Christ. 
the prospect of losing his life? Well, he'd already lost his life to Christ. He first surrendered his life. He then had a spiritual longing. Even death can't take that from me because it's just going to send me to be with Christ. And beyond that, he was presently doing what brought him great joy, which was longing for the church. So surrendered life, spiritual longing, selfless labor. He said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 17, he said, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Saying, if this is all that I am, you're the offering being presented to God, and all I am is just that drink offering that's poured on top of it to, be, to accompany the sacrifice of your lives. He's saying, that would be enough for me. Amazing. So, in conclusion, understanding the great need that existed for Paul to stay and to labor for the Philippians and others. Yeah, he's convinced. I think God's going to prolong my time. I think he's going to deliver me from prison because there's still a great need. And he had such a deep desire to see the Philippians progress in the faith. In all of that, then, his earthly circumstances could not in any way affect the source of his joy. He said in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, he wrote to that believers there in Galatia and said, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, What he's saying is that this is just my internal longing. I want to see Jesus develop in you. I want to see you progress in the faith. And just like a parent has joy as he sees his children just get up and start walking, begin to speak, get their first job, get their first uh, girlfriend or boyfriend, moving on in life, just like you rejoice to see your child grow and develop. Paul is saying, uh, just like a proud parent, I want to see Christ formed in you and you become more and more like him. That was his source of joy. Paul received joy by watching others take joy in Christ. Yeah, strong pull heavenward? Sure. Where he'd finally and forever be with Christ? Yeah, but also a strong pull towards the church so that he could serve. Now look in Philippians chapter 1, verse 26. He says, So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Even here with his attitude of sacrifice, he's in prison, but he wants to go to be with the Philippians, not so that he could have freedom, but so that they could rejoice in him. If Paul's journey to heaven would have to be delayed, he would spend that time loving and laboring in order to produce even more Christ-honoring spiritual fruit. So, a key to having an unshakable joy is learning how to rejoice in serving Christ in this life. Number one, Surrender your life. That should have happened when you received the gospel because that's Christ's call to discipleship. Give your life for me, crucify yourself, take up your cross, count the cost, and then follow me. Otherwise, you can't be my disciple. So number one, make sure that that's your understanding of salvation. You've surrendered your life to Jesus. Uh, Number two, maintain an eternal perspective. That's spiritual longing. I don't belong in this life. I don't belong in this world. I'm not going to get uh, tied down to the things of this life. I'm not going to spend my life feeding the passions of my flesh. I'm not going to allow my mind to be conformed to the world. Instead, it's going to be transformed by its renewing through the word of God and so on. So maintain that spiritual longing that I don't belong here. I'm passing through. I'm homesick for a place I haven't even yet been because that's where Christ is. And then what? Surrendered life, spiritual longing, and then serve. Serve. 
make others your priority. Love others, serve others, get involved in the church community, but be used of the Lord for the building up of the body of Christ. Then you know what happens when difficulty comes and circumstances become difficult and you say, well, that's going to steal my joy. Well, wait a second. I've already died to Christ. It can't take much else from me. I've already given my life to him. Number two, I'm not bound to this life or the comforts of this life because I have a spiritual longing. So what, what are you going to take from me? And uh, number three, you know what? As long as I have breath and I can serve others and see them built up for the cause of Christ, uh, that's my source of joy. And uh, the world can't take any of that from me. And so Paul, bound to his Roman guards, penning this letter to the church, could speak of joy and rejoicing. Because he had surrendered his life, he had spiritual longing, and he had given himself to self-labor. And we can do the same. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, help this to be true of all of us. Lord, we believe that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. We do not believe that we work for our salvation. We don't believe that anyone can boast of their salvation. It's not the result of any human effort whatsoever. It's all by your grace. Yet, we also understand that the grace that you give us, the faith to believe, looks like a faith that uh, is fully devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Believing in Christ is a matter of becoming Christ's disciple. So, it's not just a matter of mental assent to facts. And so... Help us by your grace uh, to live out our salvation. Help us to labor for Christ, not to be saved, but because we are saved uh, as that thank offering in response to your mercy. So help us to serve uh, Christ. Help us have a mentality that says we are dead to ourselves. We are crucified with Jesus. Help us have a mentality that says that it's now Christ living through us, so the choices that I make in life, the behavior that I engage in, all of these things help me to put Jesus first and think about what pleases him and what brings him glory and what makes me the best vessel to be used by him. So help us all to have an attitude of a surrendered life towards Jesus. And then help us to have a spiritual longing. Help us to not put down roots in this world uh, to the point where we uh, prioritize this life but help us instead to lay up our treasures in heaven. Help us to look to that uh, coming kingdom. Help us to long for a time when Christ returns and sets things right, where he establishes his justice and rules and reigns in righteousness, where uh, all uh, injustices are vindicated, where all sin is uh, uh, eradicated, where all of his enemies are vanquished. Help us to long for that day uh, where we can put on immortality, uh, where these bodies can give way to glorified bodies, where we can spend an eternity then with Christ. Help us along for that day where Christ will be glorified as he ought to be. Uh, and then, Lord, in the meantime, as we live and surrender to Jesus, as we long for that day, help us to be busy serving. Show us areas in which maybe we're so caught up in this world that our time is spent uh, maybe in things that are vain, futile, Maybe our life is spent in things serving ourselves. Instead, help us to know how to serve you and serve the church, uh, serve one another and build up the body. Help us to labor for the spiritual joy of one another. So show us how we can do better at that. And then, Lord, I pray through all these things that you'll help us to maintain that wonderful joy, as uh, Jesus promised in John 15, that when we keep his commandments, uh, his joy abides in us.
And then lastly, Lord, we just pray for any of this morning who are not yet Christians. We pray that they'll see their need for Jesus. We pray that they'd take up their cross and they'd follow him. They'd believe in him by faith, receiving him as Savior and Lord. And uh, I pray that you'd make them fruitful. And uh, then, Lord, if there's any who have been saved recently, I pray that they'd make the decision to be baptized, uh, making that public declaration that they've given their lives to Jesus. We thank you for all of this and for your goodness. And we confess this morning that any good that we do for your glory, any labor that we're able to achieve for your glory, is all the product of your grace uh, for which you deserve all the glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.